The matches I played, I was crying probably almost every single time I lost. I really, really wanted to win all the time, yeah. you know, and I think that also shows that I, I really cared about it, you know, and I think that's a good sign, especially when you're younger. It's a good sign to kind of show that emotion to really let people know that you care, you really want to win, you know. Today's guest is the one and only Nikhil Kumar. He is an American table tennis Olympian that competed in Tokyo in 2021. We talked about the harsh reality behind his sacrifices leading up to his goals, revealed what it's like to actually have a competitive mindset and what that means in your day-to-day -day life, as well as opened up about the importance of the process and journey through it all. You can also expect to learn about his experience at the 2021 Tokyo Olympics, what it's actually like to get drug tested by USADA, whether or not the table tennis should be an NCAA sport and a pro sport in the United States, his thoughts on the Paris 2024 Olympics, and so much more. It is worth pointing out that this episode was recorded several months ago, but there is still so much that we can all learn from it. With the podcast making a comeback, make sure to leave a like and subscribe to my channel so that I can continue growing this project. With that being said, here's the one and only Nikhil Kumar. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Denting. I am your host, Fernando Andrade, and today I have a very special guest here with me, Nikhil Kumar. Did I pronounce that right? Yep, perfect. Right. I forgot to ask you nah, right before we got started. Nikhil Kumar, how are you? Good, how are you? All good. Very excited for this, uh, a new sport that I've never talked about here on the podcast, so I'm definitely very, very, very excited about that. Um, thank you for waking up early. <laughs> thank you for having me. We're, we're recording at 8.37 a.m. right now. I was asking you if uh, you typically wake up early. Um, and you said you don't, but what, what were you watching uh, before this? Well, yeah, um, so in the U.S., actually, they're thinking about starting a new pro table tennis league. Mm. Um, so they had some kind of info session, webinar type of thing. So they're kind of letting in all the players on how the format's going to work and what's going to happen in the coming months. So Why do you think it's taken so long for there to be a pro league? Um, I think because of the funding, mainly, in the U.S., um, and also how the sport hasn't grown so much previously compared to in the last couple of years as much. It's grown a lot more. Okay. Um, so. Is there anything specific that has led to that or why do you think it's it's been growing recently? Um, I think I think probably in the last like five, ten years, we've had a lot of more up and coming players that have made a bigger impact on the U.S. table tennis in internationally in terms of representing our country. And we've had some be bigger and better results. So I think that's kind of brought, given us a bigger name in terms of internationally. So it's kind of given us more importance. Very nice. How did you get into this? Because as you mentioned in several interviews or articles, and we've talked about this previously, right? We'll yes. talk about how we met of course, um, yeah. in a bit. But since it is not so much as a mainstream sport mm -hmm. in the United States, um, I, I don't have many friends that ever played table tennis. I think, actually, you're, like, the first friend I ever have that played table tennis without referring to it as ping pong, or you just, like, <laughs> playing around, right? Um, so how did you get into this? Was it through the summer camps at the Indian Community Center, or, or how was it for you? Uh, yeah, it was, actually. So the thing is, in the Bay Area, um, in California here, um, there's a bunch of clubs, actually. There's about six or seven pretty big clubs um, that bring in a lot of players and also produce a lot of top players in the country. Um, so yeah, I started around when I was five, six years old. My parents kind of just put me into table tennis, just like how any parents does. They put in different sports, see what the kid likes, you know, and try it out. 
So my parents put me in soccer, swimming, basketball, table tennis. Uh, I think that's about it. I don't remember exactly how much. Um, and then around five or six, I was kind of picking up table tennis quite quickly. And also, given that I was left-handed, it became quite an advantage also to play table tennis, that there aren't as many table tennis players that are left-handed, especially in the U.S. I think the stat goes that it's only 10% of the world is left-handed. Yeah. So adding on top of that, the table tennis, adding on top of that, how it's not mainstream in the United States, it must play a huge advantage for you, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think in the U.S. there's probably about two or three top players that are in the U.S. that are actually left-handed. Wow. So, yeah, it does give me quite an advantage, and it has helped. Um, so, yeah, that's why I started playing that. Um, then the coaches, of course, at Indian Community Center, they kind of reached out to my parents and were like, hey, I think um, Nikhil should, has some potential, could try continuing playing the sport at a more competitive level. Uh, at first, you know, my parents were skeptical. I mean, they've never played table tennis before. They knew nothing about it, how the system worked or anything. And they originally actually ended up saying, like, no, not really. <laughs> like, this is just for the summer, you know, and then we'll see later. I went again the next summer, tried again, and I kind of picked it up quite quickly, and they kept insisting that I try playing table tennis, and my parents gave in and were like, all right, sure, let's try this out, let's see where it goes. Um, so that's where it started, and from then onwards, it just kept building up and getting more and more and taking up more of my time every year um, that I had to kind of quit everything else in terms of sports, and table tennis became my main focus around by the time I was 10, 11 years old. I was reading in different interviews and articles that something that you say makes you different is your competitive edge and attitude. Yeah. And I was also reading what you just mentioned, that you were playing soccer, basketball, and swimming. Mm -hmm. You had to quit everything in terms of other sports and activities. How much was this winning edge driving you towards table tennis? Yeah, I think um, this my competitive side of me, I think it definitely brought out a, a different personality in a sense uh, for me and I think definitely gave me an edge over my competitors in table tennis. And I think through that I was able to see the potential I was able to do, have in table tennis and the results I was creating. And through that I wanted to keep continuing and pushing to see how far I could go in table tennis. And once I could see those results coming in, and my level growing and me becoming a better player overall, um, I kind of wanted to bring my focus more and more to just table tennis and really improving my game. Do you think there's a potential negative side to that, like that fixation that you're talking about and how it brings out a different person to you? Have you ever experienced something where you feel like, wow, why did I say that? Why did I just act that way out of competitiveness? Um, nothing too crazy, nothing like... Uh, insulting or disrespectful in a sense but I think it definitely um, I have had some moments where I can get quite emotional during the matches sometimes and it has affected me mentally and kind of made me lose focus of my like my strategy in terms of trying to win the match um, but it doesn't happen too often and I think that also comes you know with a lot of experience yeah. and as I play in more and more learn a lot more about my game other people's games just how the sport of table tennis works and just build my experience overall it definitely helps uh, bring my maturity in terms of mental strength uh, a lot better. The reason why I'm asking is because I am going through a competitive journey and phase in for myself. Mm. When I was a kid, mm -hmm. uh, and that's precisely what I'm asking about, not mostly now, but as children, right? Yeah. If I lost a soccer game, mm -hmm. I wouldn't talk for the next day. 
I would not talk. And this happened up until high school. Mm. Sometimes I, depending on the performance that, eh, rarely that I had, but mostly that my teammates would have or the lack of effort from my team or something, I would cry in the car after a game. I was that pissed off. I was so pissed off that I'd go straight to the car, uh, cry, and would not say a word for the rest of the day. And then the next day, maybe I'd let it go. Now I'm, like, letting go of that little by little. In elementary school, I actually even saw a psychologist because I was yeah. so competitive <laughs> that I didn't have any friends wow. because I was so driven to winning these mm-hmm. little games yeah. that I was willing to not sacrifice, right, course, but, like, yeah, risk yeah. my friends and be like, I don't care if you're my friend or not. I'm going to win no matter what. Of course. And that's just what I had. And now I think there's a maturity sense to it, especially that sports competitively for me are out the window. Mm-hmm. So there's a fine balance. I've always been way too competitive where I'm like calming it down. But I'm asking because sometimes it brings out a different side of us that we didn't even know existed. Or it brings out, maybe it puts on a mask or it takes the mask off and you get to know the real you. I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think similar to what you said, to be honest, honestly, when I was younger, the matches I played, I was crying probably almost every single time I lost. Uh, but up until maybe I was 10, 11 years old, even older sometimes, you know, for bigger events, right, that mattered more to me. Um, so I really, really wanted to win all the time, yeah. you know, and I think that also shows that I, I really cared about it, you know. And I think that's a good sign, especially when you're younger. It's a good sign to kind of show that emotion to really let people know that you care, you really want to win, you know. Um, so, yeah, for me, it was, I, I, went, I was pretty crazy when I was young. I'd be always yelling, fighting really hard. If I won the match, I was really happy. If I lost, I cried a lot. You know, and yeah, over time, as you said also, over time I kind of understood my, and I kind of matured more, and I kind of understood to let go, and it has helped a lot. But, How did that impact your friendships as a kid? Um, not so much, to be honest. I think for me personally, like, table tennis wasn't as big of a sport, of course, so it didn't really affect friendships in terms of outside table tennis, had no impact at all in terms of within the sport itself also not too much because the thing was even if you win or lose you kind of like the next day we were playing with each other this this practice the next day so the thing i think the difference mainly you know as you you played soccer but for me i think table tennis is a there's a team sport but there's also an individual aspect to it so and individually i'm just trying to improve myself and through that i need to play with the players around me regardless win or lose you know kind of we're still teammates at the end and we're still competitors in the same sport and we're all trying to better each other. So I think I kind of had that understanding and that helped me actually from quite a young age that um, to kind of accept, understand that fact and that I think helped me improve my game quite, fat, quite quickly. With the lack of mainstream in terms of table tennis, did that affect your friendships in another way though? Because at least for me, even with soccer being the most popular sport in the world, I was so into the game and into the workouts and into the practices that my friends, especially in middle school and high school, wouldn't understand when I would say, no, I can't, I have practice. No, I can't, I have a workout the next morning. No, mm-hmm. I can't because X, Y, and Z. Oh, yeah, definitely. With, with it not being as mainstream of a sport, was it a struggle with you and your friendships for them to understand and say, like, look, I really need to do this because it's what I'm passionate about and there is something out there for me, such as the Olympics or the Pan American Games, um, but with it not being a Division One sport, with it with there not necessarily being a pro league as of right now in the United States, was it hard to communicate this to your friends? 
Um, not necessarily, because I think I understood my own goals. I mean, I definitely did have that issue of underst- I had to sacrifice the times and I had to understand that if I really wanted to achieve the goals I wanted in table tennis, I had to give up some hap- happy moments, I guess, in a sense, you could say, um, and kind of push myself through these really tough and grueling training and practices o- throughout years and years of training in order to achieve the goals I wanted. So I think I, I had that feeling ever since probably middle school. Middle school was probably when, you know, my career started building up, getting better. I started playing more tournaments when I was for like the underage, under 12 category, under 15 category, under 18, and then even the men's category. Um, so even from a young age, I understood the amount of travel I was going to have to do, training to put in. And I think given that it wasn't a mainstream sport, made it even harder and made me made it even harder to have the that close of friendships in middle school and high school because I wasn't able to have the resources that readily readily available for me in the US. I'd have to travel internationally mainly to Europe, sometimes to Asia to be able to find the resources, the training sessions, the coaches, the physical training, the different things I needed to in order to improve my game. So that required a lot of traveling as well. So I kind of made it clear from the beginning from middle school and high school with my especially with my teachers and school that like okay these are my goals this is what I want to achieve I'm still going to focus and I really want to do well in school of course but these are also my side goals and I want to do as well as I can in those as well you know and yeah I m- did miss many moments in high sc- middle school and high school and I mean do I regret it not as much to be honest because I did achieve what I wanted in table tennis and I am quite happy with the mis- uh the route I went and if I had to do it again I definitely would do you think that answer would change if you hadn't accomplished what you wanted, though? Um, no, because I don't necessarily think it's necessarily about the result that I got. I think it was also just about that journey that I went on, you know, in terms of traveling, the experiences I built, the friendships I built internationally as well, too. You know, I don't if I didn't go along those, there's many, many friends that I don't keep in, that I keep in touch with to this day that I wouldn't have had uh, friendships with if I didn't travel as much. Um, so I, if I had to do it again, even if I didn't get the same results, I think I still would because it was, it was, it was worth the process. Yeah. That's a very interesting subject, which I did want to get into because I know it's something you experienced from, from the research going to Europe and Asia a lot, mm-hmm. especially without any sponsors. Yeah. So your parents had to carry all that burden as well. Um, you have, I don't know if you still have, but at least had uh, a legendary coach, um, at ICC, to mm-hmm. my understanding, four of the previous Olympians that went to Tokyo were under the same coach here in the U.S. Was it or no? I think so. Yeah, we were, were all we were all from the same area, actually. Yeah. From, yeah. Well, was it a coach? Uh, and you're gonna have to correct me if I mis- mispronounce, but Coach uh, Royal Chef. Um, so he actually it wasn't the coach. Um, okay. So he was actually the manager of okay. of ICC India Community Center. Yeah. Where all of us actually started our careers from. Um, all of us have been there for, so yeah, the four out of the six, I guess, Olympians who went to, uh, Tokyo were from there. And even for 2012, even the three that qualified for the U for the U S two men and one woman were all from ICC as well. Wasn't it Lily that went to the Lily, 2012? Yeah, yeah. She went to that one as well. And she, Berkeley alumni as well. Yeah. Lily um, Shang. Yeah. Um, yeah. She's always welcome on dance <laughs> whenever she wants, but yeah, that, that's like, amazing to me and again like whether it's a coach or a manager to me it's just insane that all of these olympians from the same 
community center or like training center or area even just from the bay area yeah are representing the entire nation yeah. and you said that's where you started off as a kid in those summer camps and yeah. stuff and yes we'll get into europe and asia in a bit but even when you started competing nationally mm-hmm. didn't you win your first uh, national tournament was it the u9 tournament that you won for like yeah, 2011 i think well, yeah it was like a like a long time ago now and okay it's u9 but still like from your first time competing you were already ranked highly and i think the year after that you were runner up like you were right there at the very top from the beginning um how like i'm sure that helped you take things more seriously and doors opening yeah. up europe <laughs> asia but when was it that you start traveling because from the research i did and you can correct me if i'm wrong there's not many competitions in the united states especially for like when you're when you're continuously winning the national championships it's like all right i need something else mm-hmm. there's not much international competition at that age yeah. so all that was left was europe and asia yeah what age did you start doing that or or what was that like for you um yeah i think for me i probably started traveling internationally my first international tournament was when i was 12 or 11 or 12 i think i went to sweden um It was so at that time they had these junior and cadet tournaments so cadet meaning under 15 and junior under 18 um so those were all around the world and that in Sweden I played my first junior cadet event um yeah and it was completely different experience for me i mean is seeing so many different players who are all playing at the top level you know who have had the resources resources that i haven't had as much and are training full time already at such a young age you know and putting everything into the sport it was a different experience for me you know it was a, in a sense almost overwhelming you know i think in the us yeah i did build that sort of pressure on for myself which kind of i think helped me be a better player internationally and be mentally stronger during my matches um because from a young age i was always you know the number one in the country and for my specific age category um so that definitely did help me become prepared in terms of uh, ready for these uh, international players um but even then it was still difficult to play against a lot of players at such a young age you know when they have the whole system of they have groups of kids around the same age you know that are all playing at the same level all training together all day every day and this is their life you know and me coming in still in middle school you know uh high school whatever you know and still co- competing at the same time you know it was is difficult to compete with them but i mean i just tried to make the most i could i mean i think for me also my parents uh definitely instilled a lot of those values in me too and kind of made me understand you know i want to be the best at both you know do as well as i can in school but also not uh, throw away and make table tennis just like a side hobby you know be the best that i can in that as well it's crazy how sport and academics aren't connected for you and you ended up at such a great school academically yeah. uh like just as a student but when i think about these tournaments that you were attending it's very difficult for me to imagine that you were just there for a weekend i'm sure you were there weeks at a time for some of these events i'm sure there's tournaments that go back to back or something like that so you missed a lot of school is the point how did you even find i wouldn't even say balance how did you even just keep up academically because if you're missing you'll tell me how many weeks of school but if you're out of the country quite literally on the other side of the world for yeah. that long how are you doing school Well yeah I think it's thanks to my school as well to be honest my high school I think so I mean in middle school I wasn't traveling as much I was missing like a couple weeks here and there kind of thing it wasn't too big of a deal and I mean I made it clear you know to the teachers like okay I'm going to get my work done and I 
I think the most important thing for me was like the constant communication with my teachers, professors, whoever, you know, that, okay, I wanted, I'm going to compete for this. I know exams are here during this time or before or after. I know homework is due during this day, that specific day when I'm gone. I can get this specific amount of work done to you and given uh, before I leave and then I'll get the rest of the work done. Maybe you need, I might need a couple more days after and I, I'll catch up quickly, right? And I think it was kind of just my credibility as I built that over time also that I am able to uh, keep up in class and do well at the same time, along with also continue focusing on my on building my table tennis career. And that did definitely help like build that trust within my uh, with my teachers and counselors as well. Um, the other thing was when I was applying to private high schools in the Bay Area, that was one of the main things. I mean, I spoke with a lot of the teachers and counselors at different schools in the Bay Area like... Uh, how flexible are they with, with turn, in terms of how much can I travel per month, per semester, or like, you know. And some schools weren't as flexible. And they were great schools, but for me also, I had my priorities set elsewhere as well. You know, unfortunately, um, I went to Valley Christian High School, where they actually had, I think, three former national team members before me, who and one actually one previous Olympian as well, for table tennis specifically, um, who went to the school. So they knew exactly, you know, the process that it revo- involved, and the amount of travel I'd have to put in. And they're known also for supporting that the athletes, the student athletes in the school in terms of helping them achieve their goals both academically and athletically. Um, so yeah, I went into school in freshman year and I kind of set my goals, sat down with my dad and my counselor and kind of set the goals knowing that, okay, Tokyo 2020 was my junior year of high school. Um, I have these set tournaments every year. I knew Every year there was the World Under-15 Championships, World Under-18 Championships, and then the Adult World Championships. And normally at my level, I was qualifying for all three every year. So I knew I had those three minimum. Plus I would look through seeing which different international tournaments there were throughout the year, which ones I would sign up for, and kind of work it around also in terms of where school wasn't as intense in terms of when tests weren't coming up or finals weren't coming up as much, um, and kind of set my schedule in that sense. you know. And then I also make sure to speak with my teachers ahead of time, at least even weeks ahead of time, knowing, okay, this is coming up in a couple of weeks. I'm going to get some assignments done ahead of time. Um, if you could, you know, open some assignments up for me, give me some papers a little bit earlier, I'll I'll get it done before. Or sometimes even, all right, I'll come back after I'm done with this tournament and I'll catch up, you know. It involved also me having to sit sometimes after school, you know, after school finished, to have to sit down with my teachers just to explain a couple of concepts that I maybe didn't understand as much. But I think it also had to do with a lot of me having to, self-teach myself you know a lot of the concepts in school and it kind of built a little bit more responsibility in me and it, it was a different experience I, I don't know how many other students had the similar experiences I did in terms of the traveling I did and the responsibilities I had to keep up with um, but yeah it was quite an exhilarating experience to say the least. What drove you academically to be able to do all of this and self-teach yourself at times? Um, that I I knew I wanted to still do well. I think it was the competitive side of me. I think it wasn't just... That competitive side of me wasn't just in table tennis, I think. I think it was there in all parts of my life and that I just wanted to always just do the best I could no matter what. And I think I kind of learned that from my parents as well. Um, they also always told me, you know, like, hey, if school isn't doing so well, then you might have to slow down on table tennis. So in a sense, like... If I wanted to keep playing and keep competing and have that flexibility, I needed to make sure I was doing well academically as well. So I think that's where it kind of started from, where like, okay, I need to do well in school. I need to make sure I'm keeping all my courses, uh, doing the best I can there, and then table tennis will come second. 
what was your social life like at this time? Because there's only so much you can manage and handle. Um, I've heard of this thing plenty of times where it's like you you only have you can only carry two buckets of water. If you yeah. add the third one, you're gonna start spilling somewhere. Yeah. If you're trying to balance one bucket that's table tennis, another bucket that's academics, and a third bucket that's social, yeah. social you're going to be spilling all over the place. Oh, yeah, definitely. How did you manage to not even balance that, but just what was your social life like at the time? Yeah, so I think probably for me, it wasn't it wasn't that social, to be honest, um, especially during my first three years of high school. Um, wasn't really going to much parties or anything with friends. Wasn't really hanging out outside of school with friends. I didn't have too many friendships, to be honest. I had uh, maybe two or three close friendships, and then a bunch of other people who I knew, you know, hung around with in specific classes that I had with, and, you know, so it wasn't that, my social life wasn't that great, to be honest, <laughs> to say the least, but I kind of had the understanding ahead of time that, okay, table tennis is what I want to, I want to achieve these specific goals in table tennis, and I want to do the best I can, so I have to make some sort of sacrifices, you know, so, to be honest, most of my social circle came from my table tennis teammates, you know, both internationally and nationally. Um, and that's where I had most of my closer friendships with because we were with each other most of the year, to be honest. Um, so it was hard, especially my first three years. But I think once I uh, finished like my, my journey in a sense of what I wanted, especially throughout my high school years, I kind of took a step back from table tennis. And in a sense, COVID helped me almost in a way. They were like, I kind of didn't have to train. I didn't have to play as much. I was able to keep up with schoolwork. I wasn't having to catch up in anything. And I was also able to hang out with a lot more friends. I have a lot more time to do other things as well. And that definitely did help uh, in, a, in a sense, you know? Um, so, yeah. I think there's an interesting way to view sacrifices, right? Many people would say, wow, you sacrifice so much for the sport. You sacrifice so much for your academics. But it's only a sacrifice if you were tempted to do something else in the first hand. Yeah. If you never had that in sight anyways, it's not really a sacrifice. It's just what you wanted to do. Maybe your social life was great because your social life was table tennis. Yeah. To me, my social life on a weekend was traveling with my soccer friends to go play in a soccer game. Yeah. And that was it. That was my social life. And there's nothing wrong with that. To me, social life to a certain extent is how you choose to spend your free time with other people. If that's your sport, then that's your social life and that's okay. Yeah. But it's not really a sacrifice until you're tempted to go out to these parties, to go out with the partner or a potential partner or go on, yeah. on dates things like that like when you have those temptations that's a sacrifice to be able to say damn i want to do that as well but i want this more right now yeah that's a sacrifice but were you experiencing this at any point or was it not even a thought no i think similar to what you said yeah i was it wasn't really that much of a thought it was kind of others pointing it out to me like wow you're sacrificing this you're sacrificing that and for me i was like i wasn't really sacrificing that because it wasn't really a thought for me in the first place it was table tennis was as you said also for you right soccer was your way of social socializing and ha where your friendships really were. <coughs> Excuse me. You're good, you're good. Yeah. But that's where I where I was happy, honestly. I wasn't really thinking about it, you know. As soon as school was done, I was at the table tennis uh, training hall from probably 4 to 8 every day. I wasn't training from 4 to 8 p.m. every single day. You know, I was kind of, I had like a maybe two-hour session of training every single day within that 4 to 8 p.m. period. But I was kind of, had other friends coming in and out during that time and I was hanging out with them. So for me, that was my uh, social side of it. And I was happy with where I was. And I didn't feel like I was sacrificing anything because it wouldn't have been 
Like, it would have been more sacrificing if I was thinking about, like, the other, what I was missing out on. But I didn't feel like I was really missing out on that much. For someone that has no clue about table tennis and in the specifics and watches it only in the Olympics or, like, looks up a YouTube video, for somebody that has no clue about this sport, what does training look like for you? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, for me personally, in the U.S., it's a little bit different. So, I had, in the U.S., which was my average day, I was training probably two hours of just table tennis a day. So this was kind of just like warming up and then like footwork drills in terms of like moving around the table, playing different uh, like s- spots on the table and hitting it back and forth. Um, so this was for about two hours or so. Then once that finished, I normally had about thir- 30 minutes to an hour of physical after. And that was my average training session every day. So about two to three hours every single day. Um, I mean, physical training involved, you know, core training, agility training, speed, you know, making sure my reaction, you know, I improve that all the time. And also some like uh, strength training, you know, explosiveness. Because table tennis is quite an intense sport, to be honest. It requires a lot of explosiveness, speed, you know, uh, reaction time and even strength, to be honest. So it's it's quite uh, difficult um, for those who haven't played it as much. Yeah, I have to confess that before before I did this research for this podcast, um, I thought that it was mostly reaction-based, and it's a great deal reaction-based, yeah. but watching your videos and seeing your footwork, because you've mentioned footwork in the past, and I was like, what is this kid talking about? Especially yeah. with soccer, it's like, what are you talking course, about yeah. footwork-wise? Yeah. But then I see how much you're on your feet, and it's like, obviously very much so shortened, but it's like a quicker tennis to a certain extent. Yeah. You are like bouncing and on your toes the entire time, explosively in a ridiculous way like when i was watching the videos i was like holy shit what is this kid doing like <laughs> yeah that, that is crazy you're like i'm not sure if you have a way of keeping up with your heartbeat but it must be extremely high when you're playing especially like in between those intervals when you're going at it it's mostly intervals i feel like yeah, because yeah. of how the nature of the game but when i was watching you i was like wow yeah that must be a lot of agility for sure but also cardiovascular that i just yeah. didn't consider Oh, yeah, I think that's another thing for us. I mean, most of our matches, they tend to be about 45 minutes long, 45 minutes to an hour, if it's like ends up going like the full length, you know. And in order to be able to play at your highest level for that, you got to do a bunch of endurance training as well, too, you know. So we had a lot of cardio training in terms of just interval training on the treadmill in terms of like changing different speeds. Uh, you probably know as well how this works. Um, and then uh, just cycling and then kind of just for long periods of time in order to build up that endurance, in order to be able to play at the highest level on the table itself. So, yeah, it was years of just <laughs> concentrating over and over again and it kind of became muscle memory now in order to be prepared for pre- uh, future competitions. Before we dive into more serious topics, sure. why do some people call it ping pong when it's actually table tennis or what's the difference with that? Yeah, I think, okay, for me, to be honest, I don't really have too much of a preference. Uh, If you said either one in front of me, I don't really care. But I think that what I've heard of specifically, I think, is that table tennis is the more, like, professional name, is the actual professional sport that we play. And ping pong is more the recreational, like, backyard sport that it is. Um, They are pretty much the same thing. Um, for me personally, I don't really care. I do end up saying table tennis probably most of the time because I'm also just used to hearing that where from when I'm playing all the time. But for me, I don't. I'm not gonna get offended if you see one or the other. But I think that is the main difference between the two. In high school, you mentioned that you were qualifying for U15, U18, and senior 
World Cups or World Championships at the exact same time, which is unreal to think of. Not only skill-wise, but schedule-wise as well, right? That's just crazy to think of. What was that progress like for you? I know in 2019, you must have been, what, a sophomore? I think so. Yeah, Yeah. because I was... Going into junior year, yeah. Yeah, going into junior year is when you went to the Pan American Games. Yeah, that summer. yeah. Yeah, that summer. And, I mean... That was, was 2019 your first senior, uh, not tournament, but like accomplishment or like meddling? Yeah, in terms of results, yes. yeah, that was probably the biggest ever. And even to this day, probably one of my biggest achievements. Um, but in terms of starting, like uh, playing adult tournaments, I think my first was in 2017 in the World Championships in Dusseldorf. Um, and since then, I played 2017 and then 18 in Sweden, 19 in Budapest. And then I think 20 was when COVID started and then 21 2021 was actually in the houston so we had yeah so i've been playing a bunch of them but yeah i think over time i've been building them but 2019 was definitely the biggest one i ever did leading up to that leap of making an impact on the senior national team what was your biggest challenge to get there um i think for me personally i think was my physical training i mean with my teammates and stuff i think uh, I think they would also say the same. I think for me, normally I kind of used my smarts and like my feeling around with the spin of the game uh, a lot more than other players did. And I kind of had a unique way of playing. I wasn't playing that simple in terms of just like simple forehands and backhands on the table. Um, I kind of played a little bit more strange in a sense and players weren't expecting it. And it, I had to kind of, for me physically, I had to build myself to become even stronger in order to keep up with the players that uh, were much older than me. Um, and I think that was probably the biggest challenge within table tennis. Um, I knew that, okay, losing, winning matches, that was going to come and go, you know. And that will help with my ex- building my experience. Um, and that'll the experience will show later on in my career as I got older. But I needed to build up my physical as soon as I could in order to be prepared for to play long matches and intense matches against players that were probably older than me and playing this sport for their entire life. I mean, up until that point, and even maybe... Up until this day, you're, you've probably been playing against people that are older than you yeah. for a long time. I saw um, in the Olympics, you were the second youngest ever American yeah. to make the team, um, which is incredible. Congratulations on that. <laughs> you. But you continuously play against people that are older than you, and I get how that physical advantage could, could be different. So what was different for that, I guess, successful senior debut in... 2019 with the Pan American Games in, in Peru? Um, well, okay, that was my first Pan American Games, you know, and also like in terms of games, you know, like Olympics and that, so it was a much bigger stage than anything I've ever been on in the past, you know, completely different experience and we kind of, we live in that athlete village, you know, where you see all these different amazing athletes from all over the world with playing all kinds of sports and you kind of understand the professionalism that there is behind this whole event as a whole and that you kind of achieved something that not many people get to achieve, and it only comes once every four years. So kind of wanted to make the most of that moment, you know. So I think it came with the understanding that, so the team qualified together, like probably earlier that year, in about March, I think, March, April, we qualified already. So we knew who our team was. It was three of us, and we were we knew exactly, like, how we were going to set up the structure for our team and how we were going to train for this. So, excuse me. <coughs> you're good the so that starting that summer we started training so Pan Am Games if the event happened at the end of the summer 
at the beginning of August. And we started training from June. Um, in June, we started kind of all... So me and one other, we lived together. We lived near each other in the Bay Area. And another teammate lived in uh, Southern California. Um, but because of the summer also, thankfully, we didn't have school. So we were easily able to travel comfortably wherever we needed to be. And we played quite a few tournaments together, um, trained together, had other teammates also join in. We had bigger training camps. Um, that summer, I think, was the longest uh, or most I've been away from home, probably. When I, at that age, probably, I was home maybe for like a week that entire summer. Um, but yeah, I knew what I had to put into this in order to achieve what I wanted at the Pan American Games. Um, definitely not the result we expected, to be honest. I think even with the at the level we were playing, we didn't expect the best we were achieve, expecting to achieve was probably a bronze medal. Um, fortunately, we were able to get a gold medal in the team event for the first time in 20 years for the U.S. So it was a pretty big moment for us, given also that I was, I think, 16. Yeah, our number one player was 18, and our number two player was, I think, 17 or 18 as well. So we were a very young team. And other teammates, uh, other opponents as well were around mid-20s to 30s almost. So for us, it was a pretty big deal. Yeah, that's incredible, especially the fact that you mentioned that you guys hadn't won a gold medal in 20 years. Yeah. Um, that, that says a lot, especially of potentially, like, to my understanding, of a new generation with a pro league potentially coming in, yeah. the youth that you guys have on, on your team right now. And even moving forward, it's just, it sounds like it's, I wouldn't want to ignorantly call it a golden generation, but it seems like it was definitely like a new age for uh, the United States table tennis team. Oh yeah, definitely. To be honest, I think this started all in 2016, 17. Um, we brought in a new high performance director at that time. He was uh, previously the German national team on the women's side. He was the head coach. So he knew how to, how to work the system and they, he actually helped them, coach them, they ended up getting a silver medal in the Olympics in 2012, I think, which is a huge deal for them, right? For anyone. For anyone, to be honest, yeah. But I think given how strong the other Asian countries and other European countries are, to be able to battle it out with so many other different high-level countries and to be able to achieve such an accomplishment is a really big thing. So we knew what we were bringing in and what we needed to do in order to achieve our goals. Up until 2017, we didn't have any professional players, we do have one currently, uh, his name's Kanak Ja. He's playing in uh, Europe. Uh, and so with that, uh, he was training there. I was, I had in high school, so I still had quite a bit of flexibility in terms of travel. And I knew what was necessary to be able to be the best we could as a team. Um, and so 2017 started, you know, this process of playing a bunch of tournaments and scheduling everything for the next like six months, you know. So the high performance director really sat down with us at that time. Um, kind of, I gave him my schedule first in terms of high school of like, okay, these are my holidays during the week. These are when the exams are. So like these weeks, I really cannot travel. These weeks I can travel all I want. And then the middle we can decide depending on how important those tournaments are. So we kind of built every six months a schedule of how I would be able to, uh, train, uh, which tournaments I would play, what to be prepared for. And also understand that some tournaments were, were kind of building steps for other tournaments, you know, just this kind of progress to see how I was playing. Um, and that's kind of how we did it. Uh, and it kind of built the professionalism within our country that I didn't think we've ever seen before. And did kind of start, as you said, also, in a way, the golden generation for us. Um, we had a lot of results in those last those three years, especially within the Pan Am region. 
we won all the junior events all the we got at least top 3 in all the adult events as well um so it was quite a a uh, great accomplishment for us especially for those coming years as upcoming towards 2019 and that was in 2019 in 2020 yeah. is when you qualify for the olympics yeah take me through that process what that was like i saw that you qualified in very early march i believe it was yeah fe- end of february march e- end of february beginning of march of 2020 yeah. you qualify for the olympics before we talk about what happens right afterwards, sure. take me through that process of what it's like to qualify for the Olympics under table tennis. Yeah, so for me, okay, first I kind of set my goals for this in 2018 or so. And I think that was probably the most important thing, you know. This is not a kind of tournament that I could decide like two months before, like, okay, I want to try for this. Let me start training now. So I started my process in about 2018, knowing that all the tournaments before that were kind of building up to this big one, you know. And so with that in mind, I kept playing each of my tournaments, kept training. And then I didn't really have to worry about the results so much. I just wanted to play well and make sure I was still like my level was improving over time. Right. So I think the way the format worked um, for the Olympic team was we had uh, three uh, players on the men's side and three players on the women's side. So we actually had to beat Canada first, one match with them to determine which one of us would have a t- be able to send a team to um, Tokyo. How do they determine who plays for that? So we had a separate team trials for that in 2019, I think. In, I think, September 2019, we had a trials for that. The match was in October. Um, it ended up being the three players who played for that match were also the three players who qualified for the Olympics as well. So we did end up sending our strongest team for that. Um, fortunately enough, we won that match, which allowed us to have three spots on the team. Um, then the trials in 2020... <coughs> the trials in 2020 had um so the number one per position on the team was automatically qualified through world ranking so whoever had the highest world ranking which was uh our, our teammate kanak ja so he took that spot so there were two more spots left on the team and that was going to be determined in the trials um they had uh originally the format of the winner of the trials would get the second spot on the team and the third position would be decided by discretionary selection based on five different criterias, I think, over the past one year um, about how you played in different tournaments, both internationally and domestically. Me having the 2019 Pan Am Games gold medal under my belt, too, kind of gave me a pretty big advantage in terms of that spot almost being guaranteed for me. Right? Um, unfortunately, there were some disputes and stuff that changed throughout, and people having... So then they ended up switching out the format, saying that now the third spot was going to be determined by... I think, yeah, by whoever got second in the trials. So basically, whoever got first and second in the trials was the second and third position on the team. Um, I was fortunate enough to be able to win the trials itself, so I didn't have to worry about any third-place discretionary, none of that selection stuff. And I was able to secure the second spot and also be qualified myself for the singles event. So even though we had three players on the team, the top two on the team were the ones that were able to qualify for the singles event, and the third player joined us for the team event. So yeah, it was a it was a pretty grueling couple of years, honestly, um, but it was uh, it was worth it, I guess. To you know, I, once I qualified for the team, it kind of all hit me in that moment. You know, like all right, I kind of all that work I've kind of put into everything I wanted to achieve. This was the biggest one I really wanted, and I was fortunate enough to get it. Let's talk a bit about that feeling sure. at the end. As soon as you accomplish it, and you know that it was all worth it. Yeah. 
it must be a fantastic feeling. But how long does it last? Not that long, to be honest. Um, I thought it would be longer. And also, I think COVID also changed everything for me in that moment, too. But I think regardless of COVID or not... Um, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Let's, excuse me. So we were talking about that feeling. Yeah, yeah. So I think for me it was, okay, it was amazing. You know, I was, of course, posting, you know, great, happy about it, of course. Um, really appreciative of the moment. Um, but I think it really only was that kind of happiness for about maybe a couple of days or so, to be honest. I mean, because I knew that, like, my goal wasn't just to par- participate in this event. You know, I wanted to be able to create some result or do the best I could in the event, you know. Most athletes, we're not just going there just to, you know, just to see, just to participate in the moment. We're still competitive athletes, especially for an event like the Olympic Games. Everybody wants to be in their best shape and play the best that they can. So after probably a couple of days or so, I knew, okay, now I have my new set goals. <clears throat> I knew um, because of COVID and everything that Olympics got postponed to the next year. So in a way, it almost gave me another whole year to prepare to become even better than I was in that moment, you know, and with maybe even with the extra summer that I had, along with some possible traveling, not likely because of COVID, um, I was able to kind of even better myself uh, for the Olympics. The issue with that feeling is that many people think that it'll last a long time. It really doesn't. And I think that the feeling right after you win something, regardless of what it is, whether you do well in school, whether you get a job promotion, whether you qualify for the Olympics, whatever the case may be, I think that the biggest issue with this feeling is that we all think that the grass is greener on the other side. And we think once we have that, I will be happy. When in reality, you don't realize that what you enjoyed about it the most was chasing it. Exactly. Chasing for it. That's the best part. That's the funnest part. But once you already have it, you're like, oh, that's all it was? Yeah. That, that's all it actually took? And then you start chasing something else and more and more. Exactly. But with athletes specifically, it could lead to something that isn't always great. For example, I had an Olympian here, a mm-hmm. real Olympian, Robin Neumann. She swam for the Netherlands. Okay. And she described that the feeling that athletes have all the time is, well, first is you qualify for the Olympics. Yeah. And then, all right, that's not enough. Now I want to qualify for the final. Yeah. All right, that's not enough. Now I want to be on the podium. Oh, I got bronze. Now I want oh, gold. gold. Oh, I got gold. Let's go back to back. Exactly. It's never enough. There's always something more you want to achieve. Even if you achieve the highest level of achievement, you still want, you want to do it again then, you know? To a certain extent, it's good because it's what keeps us going. Yeah. But when you put yourself worth with your performance and with your results, yeah. when is enough enough? Um... I think it's kind of like, I think at the end almost, like once you're kind of, for me personally, now that my career is kind of slowed down and I'm kind of focusing more in school, I'm kind of learning to be more appreciative of the moments in the past that I've, and kind of accepting those then. You know, I think when you're at the peak of your career and you're really playing at the highest level, you kind of want to achieve everything you can. So you kind of don't give as much importance to every to each individual achievement throughout and you want to play well and do as well as you can and of course, win. And after you win, you're great, you're happy, you know, and then you want to move on to the next, you want to achieve something more. And I think that's great. I think that's what, probably where the best athletes are in the for any sport, you know, they want to keep achieving and be the best they can and not stop there, you know, want to just kind of solidify that they are the best, you know. And I think it kind of comes later on where you kind of realize you what you achieved 
and you kind of look back at your career in a sense of like, okay, I'm kind of grateful, appreciative for the moments I had. Um, I wish they, you know, I kind of maybe sometimes people kind of forget about them in a sense, you know. And I think that's something I'm trying to understand in a way of like kind of just being grateful for the moments I had in the past and that those probably will never be taken away from me also. Did you ever struggle with tying your self-worth with your performance and results? Um, I think, yeah, in a, in a sense. For me also, I think even the qualifying for 2020. So actually, let me start off by saying like in the U.S., table tennis isn't like that big of a sport after 18 to 19 years old. It's known that like it's in America, like education is prioritized. So most players almost quit by 18, 19. So they want to achieve as much as they can by the time they're 18, 19. Right. And for me, that my Olympics fell into that almost the end of that age. Right. Or like, OK, I really, really needed this one, even though it's like, OK, if I know if I didn't qualify, big deal. I'm still one of the best country, best players in the country. Right. And I could still have a possibility of trying for it again. You know, um, but for me in that moment, I was like, no, I have to do it. I have to do it now. It's all or nothing kind of thing. Right. And it kind of felt like if I didn't do it, this would define my entire career which I understand now that it wouldn't have been as, like, defined as much if I didn't qualify. Of course, it did help build my career as a whole and help my resume, in a sense. But in that moment, I was like, it was all or nothing for me. Um, and then after that, also it changed, you know. I think things changed for me because now when I go back to playing tournaments, I feel also now there's a different set of added pressure for me, you know, that, like, okay, I feel now that everyone's kind of almost gunning for me, in a sense, now. Before, I felt like I was the underdog, and I was always fighting up, you know, in a sense, and trying to beat everybody else and take everyone else down. And now I feel like I had the pressure, given that I have that, in a sense, like, name of national champion, Olympian, like, different things like that, um, to my name, and that not everyone else has achieved that, and that they want those as well, and they're going to be trying to beat me in order to achieve those. Of course, you have a target on your back now. Exactly. I think... Especially, you, you helped me put it into perspective now that you said that after your career and once it's slowing down, which we'll talk about mm -hmm. in a bit as well because it's, there's there's that gray area, right? But yeah. once you're past that moment, I think that the best way to look at any of this, when is enough enough to Robin's point, right? Yeah. When is enough enough for we want to keep chasing and that's what makes great athletes, great people in business or in any aspect of your life that you keep yeah. chasing and going and going and going. But I feel like when you can say enough is enough is when you can look back and say, I left it all. There is yeah. no longer any gas in the tank. Yeah. I am done. There's nothing else I could have done. I don't think it's based on results or any awards or whatever it may be, or even recognition. Yeah. I think that you know enough is enough that you did your job well when you know that you left nothing in the tank. Yeah. No gas in the tank. There's nothing else you could have done. Yeah. And then whatever happens, happens. But when you leave everything out there based on what you can control, that, that's all you can do for yourself. It's not meddling. Yeah. It's not qualifying. It's not a podium. It's not this. It's not that. Not even awards or recognitions or honors. Mm -hmm. It's just you knowing that when you look in the mirror, you could have... You can't ask anything else of yourself. Yeah, I mean, to add on to that, I think no regrets, to be honest. You know, once you, if you look back at your career and you realize, okay, I'm happy with what I've done, regardless of whether I achieved everything I wanted, if I know I put in, you know, the full effort into every moment, and know that I, if I don't think back and say, oh, I wish I could have done that, I wish I could have done this, 
then you know you're you're set you know you do, you're happy with what, what you've done so far and i think in a sense that is where i am now i am happy with everything um anything further i achieve is great you know but if i don't it doesn't take away from what i have already achieved you know and i have no regrets from everything from anything i've done in the past you know and that's the most important thing for me so you qualify for the Tokyo 2020 Olympics yeah literally 2 weeks before there's a shutdown I mean, across the united yeah. states yeah. and the entire world because of covid yeah we don't have to talk about this too much because the entire world knows what happened yeah. but for your training specifically how did that change especially in those early weeks when you still thought that there were going to be olympics held in tokyo in the year 2020 yeah so i think for me personally i was okay so i have a table at home um i you have a in a sense it's called a robot that like it just shoots out balls you know um on the table and i was training with that for weeks at home you know just trying to stay in shape and just keep feeling my and keep my touch with the uh, the sport you know along with that i was doing my own physical training on the side at home as well um and that was my schedule for the first at least um probably month or so month or two months um it was difficult um it was also hard you know to every day wake up you know kind of knowing that i'm still at home you know in a way and i just want to like chill knowing that like the couch is not that far away from me you know and i was i kind of had to mentally like push myself all right i have to go practice a little bit at least you know just to keep in touch knowing that i have the biggest moments of my life coming up right so that was my schedule for probably the first couple maybe one or two months or so i believe it was around june that the tokyo olympics were postponed to the year 2021 yeah How did that change your entire schedule because as you previously mentioned since 2018 you were thinking about 2020 and everything was leading up to it whether it was training sessions or tournaments when that year gets postponed what changes for you schedule wise and mentality wise I think um probably mentally it gave me another year you know I took it positively I wasn't like oh I my moment isn't here yet it was like oh I have one more year to become even better than I can be right now for the biggest moment of my life you know so i took it in the most positive way i could um and just prepared in that sense i mean outside of that i kind of waited until i think probably july or so july august was like slowly there was some very slight flexibility in terms of training going back into training it, i went back with just me and my coach nobody else in the center at all for months it was just like that where we would practice um in like completely silent club which is quite a different experience for me but also in a sense helped me really stay focused on you know okay just train train you know stay focused and um keep improving from that olympic team did you guys have to requalify no fortunately not i was really grateful for that <laughs> um i didn't have to requalify um because they i think the IOC president he had he made a statement saying i think probably around august or so once after they made the decision to postpone it that i think there at that time there were about 76 athletes that already had qualified um for the Tokyo Olympic Games and they said those who already qualified keep their spots on the team <coughs> so this helped a lot the the IOC being the International, International Olympic Committee yeah okay my question with that being did that add any pressure to you because again you could have been chilling on your couch but did this keep you accountable or did it hold you accountable in the sense that hey you have a job to do and whatever you were thinking about preparing between March and July or August mm-hmm. now you have to do 
for the next 15 months because you your commitment originally was for the next six months or so. Yeah. Now it was for the next 15 to 18 months. Yeah. No, yeah, it definitely changed. Um, but I think at the same time, I was still competing at such a high level at the time and training so much that it didn't change too much for me. It just I just knew that my goals or the the steps to the to my goal was just changed alters probably slightly in a sense where like now tournaments that were going to happen after Olympics are kind of happening before and kind of being stepping stones up to Olympics, um, and we kind of we brought the group together the Olympic team well, at least the four of us mainly that were in the Bay Area we brought us us four came together kind of lived together and trained together for about two, three months during the 2021 20, summer. Um, with no one else, like, in the hall or anything, we trained together, and we did that for about two to three sessions every day for about two to three months before uh, table before the Olympics started. Yeah. Take me to through the experience of what Tokyo was for you. Yeah, I mean, Tokyo, I mean, for me personally, even though it was COVID, it was still an unbelievable experience. Um, my first time, and maybe my only time, not sure yet, you know. Um, for Olympics, uh, kind of going in was quite overwhelming, you know, just to see, you know, the whole thing as a, the whole event as a whole, you know, the experience with the athlete village, the, all the different halls, you know, the training halls, the table tennis hall, the different events that were going on in other places. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to witness any other sporting events at the, during that time, but it was still an unbelievable, unbelievable experience. I was able to, you know, meet a bunch of great athletes um throughout the week um for me i think one of the most memorable moments was opening ceremony um i think the u.s team was one of the few countries that gave the ultimate flexibility of if you want to go to the opening ceremony go for it because due to covid and everything some teams restricted the number of people or athletes that they wanted to send to opening ceremony um fortunately for us i was able to go and that was a, a like surreal experience for me, you know, seeing all these different amazing athletes, you know, that we're all playing at the highest level of our game and all in the same moment. And we're all representing the same country too, you know. It felt amazing, to be honest. I saw the picture and it's just crazy to think that you and Kevin Durant were representing the exact same team on the exact same stage. Yeah, I mean, for me it was surreal. I mean, for me, of course, I love watching basketball. Basketball is one of my I most watched sports. I probably watch all the time. So for me to see all those different NBA athletes representing the U.S. and stuff was a pretty crazy moment. And to see that, you know, I was on the same stage as them, like, for my specific sport. And represent, we're all representing the same country. We're all trying to bring back as many medals as we can. It was a pretty big moment for me. Just put it, to put it into perspective, you and Kevin Durant were wearing the same uniform at the Olympics. Yeah, to say the least, I guess, yeah. Um, the opening ceremony, yeah, we were all in the same fit. That's awesome. That's very, very cool. What was the experience at the village like? Um, it was uh, it was different than I think what most people expect, you know, like okay, in the mornings because of COVID, before our day even started, before we could even brush our teeth, we had to spit in a tube every morning and send it down for COVID testing. Um, so we did that for two whole weeks like that, every single morning when we woke up. Um, and then we started our day and then... For for table tennis specifically, it is one of the longest sports during this uh, uh, during the Olympic Games, where it's probably there the entire two weeks actually. So many sports are there just the first week. Some are starting the second week, but table tennis is there throughout the entire week. Given that we have five different events that are being played, um, so for that for us we were there quite a long time, um, and it it does change also mentally. You know, it's hard to like 
stay focused for such a long period of time at and be at the highest level of your game for two whole weeks, you know, staying focused. But that's also what we trained for, for the entire time. Um, so for us, yeah, staying in the village, you wake up in the morning, probably like 7, 8 a.m. or something. Um, depending on your events, you know, sometimes if you're not playing that day, maybe you get in some extra sleep, you know, maybe you wake up maybe 10, 11 a.m. Um, we can go down to like the meal uh, hall and uh, they were unbelievable. Different kind, all options around the world, basically. Right. And whatever you wanted, really, there it was available there. And the food was pretty good, to be honest. I, I liked it a lot. Um, we got went down eight and then maybe if we were if we had matches coming up, maybe we would practice a little bit. It's kind of just, just keep the feeling going and also kind of get rid of that jet lag a little bit. You know, that traveling from the U.S. to Tokyo is quite a long travel. So for us, it was kind of just like getting ready for the events um, ahead of time. And then so for us, I think we got there about two, three days earlier than our events started. Um, and we would practice. And yeah, that was our general schedule. Kind of just eat, sleep, train kind of thing. Nothing too crazy. What was your... How do you feel about your personal performance and experience competing at the Tokyo Olympics? Yeah, I was really happy with actually with uh, the way I played. Um, um, what was crazy was we had, I think, 65 players on the men's side. And for the singles event, so only 64 would make the main draw. So the, the 65th player, I think one player from Mongolia, he had to play one preliminary match. And they picked someone out of random out of the bottom 15 to play against him in the preliminary round to go to the main draw. Unfortunately, my name was picked out for that, so it gave me an extra match to play, you know. And it was also the day right after opening ceremony, and the opening ceremony was the night before, but I couldn't miss a chance like opening ceremony. Um, so I went to that, came the next morning, had to play at 10 a.m., I think, or so. It was quite crazy, I think, for me. Um, and then I fortunately won that match and made to the uh, joined the rest of the players in the main draw. Um and I think that also kind of gave me a boost because no one else played a match before me, you know. So I kind of had a feeling of how the table was, how the event was, how kind of this my surroundings were and how to be prepared to win the match, you know. So that kind of, I think, gave me a bit of an edge into my first, into the round, uh, round of 64, where I won my match against one player from Ecuador. Um, he's quite strong as well, plays in Europe professionally and everything. So I was pretty happy with my performance. I mean... Once you reach the round of 32, it becomes quite hard because the players that are in those rounds are very, very strong. And from there, it, it was quite difficult. Unfortunately, I lost that match to one player from Sweden. Um, I didn't really have much chance, to be honest, in the round of 32. But I was really happy with my performance. I mean, congratulations on that. That's so ridiculous. Top yeah. 32 in the world is is something else. And nobody can take that away from you. Yeah. So that, that's awesome. With the specific Olympic team that you were a part of, yeah. with the team being only three on the male side, three on the female side, yeah. um, six total, yeah. we've talked about this already, four out of the six, you're all from the Bay Area, we're all training together. Yeah. Something that caught my attention is there were many articles mm-hmm. um, that came from Indian sources that yeah. were very, very, very proud of you and... and Mentioning who your grandparents were yeah. and where you were from and all these things. Yeah. Um, something that caught my attention is that from the team, yeah. the U.S. table tennis team, four out of the six are Chinese-American and yeah. the other two are Indian-American. Yeah. 
what does that say about about the sport? Because you've also mentioned that Europeans are strong at table tennis. Yeah. But it's inevitable to mention how good the China national team is at table tennis and how much of a powerhouse they are. Yeah. So what do you think this reflects or shows about the sport of table tennis? Um, I think in the U.S. it's more of an Asian-dominated sport. Um, we have a lot of players that are um, probably yeah, from Asian descent uh, families. And I think also we have a lot of coaches that come from China, mainly from China, to be honest. Um, especially li- given that we live in Cal- on the West Coast side, it's more prominent to have a lot more coaches from China, Japan, Korea, you know, that come from this side to coach and train here. You know, many of them weren't good enough or strong enough to make it as far as they could because of how dominating China is or other Asian countries are um, in their, in, at their level, you know. So they come here and do help a lot and provide some guidance to a lot of players here in terms of how the systems are run there and how to be successful within those systems. Um, so that definitely helped a lot. And I think even, uh, yeah, our third player on our team, he was actually former Chinese national team many, many, many years ago. And then he never made it to the biggest stage. He was on the national team, though, which is a huge accomplishment in China. Um, and then uh, moved to the U.S. and then uh, became a citizen here. And then after some time, uh, joined the team. Did he ever debut with the senior national team uh, in th- China? In China, I think he did one or two times. How does that work? For example, in soccer, yeah. as soon as you make your senior debut with any national team, you're yeah. stuck with them for life. You can bounce around for juniors, but as soon yeah, yeah. as you debuted in an official game yeah. for the senior national team, yeah. not a friendly, nothing, like a senior official national team game, you're, d- you're, you're done. You're representing you're that country. Yeah, you're representing that country. doesn't matter what happens. So how does that work for table so tennis? I, I don't know the specifics because I'm a U.S. citizen. I've always represented the U.S. my whole life. Um, but I think you once you kind of want to represent another country, you have to wait a certain amount of time. There's about, I think, seven to nine year wait. Even then, you know, where you have to fill out the registration and then you have to just kind of wait time until you can play again. And table tennis isn't a, like a long career in terms of like most players are done by like mid-30s, maybe maybe 40s, not even the 40s normally. Um, so to have to wait, you kind of, it's difficult, you know, but... To have to wait nearly a decade, did you say seven to nine years? Yeah, many players. It depends. It depends when you come to the U.S. and when you apply for citizenship. If you're younger, like kind of, if you think you're under 18, then the time to wait is a little bit shorter. Um, even under 15, I think, is even shorter than that. But um, I think when you're adult, I think it's seven to nine years, something like that. Wow. Yeah. That's a long time. Yeah. Especially athletically. Wow. That's, yeah. That is a lot. Um, you were the second youngest ever Team USA Olympian for table tennis. Yeah. Was there any added pressure because of that? Mm. I don't think, uh, in terms of qualifying or in terms of playing the Olympics? Everything. Um, in terms of qualifying, not there was some kind of pressure in terms of like, I kind of kind of instilled it on myself in a way because I didn't really care about how old I was, you know, whether I was second youngest or second oldest even, you know, it made no difference to me um, because I was always playing with players older than me and they were, we had a, vari- a variety of players who were of different ages. So for me, I just we were just competing with players around the same level. I didn't really care who was how old, you know. I just wanted to compete and I wanted to win, you know. And I think, yeah, for me it was a great accomplishment. Sure, I didn't really think about it even after that, like, oh, I was the second youngest. Yeah, it's another thing to add, I guess, to it. But I was happy with just qualifying and just playing the highest level of table tennis I could. You've mentioned your teammate and friend, Janonka. 
multiple times now, yeah. and he was the youngest ever to qualify for Team USA for table tennis. I believe he was 16, 16 yeah. at Rio. Yeah. What has that been like for you in terms of being able to learn from him as a teammate and as a friend? Because although you're at the same level, yeah, he is a bit older than you, and he did have that Olympic experience that you still lacked. So what was that like for you? Yeah, so I think we first hung out and we were first like together on the national team in 2017. I think my first time rooming with him was probably at the World Juniors events, Under-18 World Championships, um, when we were in Italy together. So this was, yeah, it was a different experience for me, you know, because like, he is someone I could learn from, a lot from at that time. Uh, I He definitely, I kind of followed him in a sense of like how he kind of went about in terms of professionalism and how to pretty uh, really achieve, you know, the goals you could. Um, I did learn a lot from him in terms of just, even just watching table tennis, you know, just matches and kind of understanding how players uh, uh, play their certain strategies and whatnot. But I think also a lot of things I learned and I picked up when I became the oldest one on the team and he kind of moved out to the adult category and I was still playing in the juniors and cadets, um, was kind of just like leading the team on my own, you know. He was the one that, he still is the one, you know. We kind of, Almost in a, we kind of joke around like, okay, as a team, we need to just win one point because we know Kanak can take two more points for the team, you know. So that was kind of the thing for us. Um, and I think I kind of felt that sort of pressure added to myself when I was the oldest one on the team and the strongest player that like, okay, I need to be able to lead this team and show like what we're capable of. And I think if I can instill that confidence in myself and prove it to them, it helps them also build their confidence and become even better as players individually and as a team. So that was a lot that I learned from him, and we have grown and had a great uh, friendship with each other. Um, we are still uh, in touch, and he's still playing professionally. I have moved to a different, to a different path, kind of going through school now, but I'm still trying to play, you know, at the highest level that I can be. We'll talk about that sure right after, but for now, right after the Olympics comes a very interesting moment in many of the Olympians' life. Yeah. Um, right afterwards and in the following months and even years comes what many refer to as the post-Olympian, a post-Olympic feeling, the mm -hmm. post-Olympic depression almost, mm. um, which is, for those that don't know, the sensation of this feeling of, wow, I accomplished this. What's, what's next? next? Yeah. What's next to be achieved? What's next to strive for? And even if there is something more, yeah. It's four years later, yeah. and it comes to self-worth and basing yeah, yeah, yeah. your worth on your performance and all these things. Yeah. Did you ever experience any sort of post-Olympic depression? Um, I don't think, like, too much. I think um, after the Olympics finished, I I kind of I was happy with what I accomplished. Um, the thing is, yeah, as you said also, right, when we are kind of working towards the Olympics, you set so many goals ahead of time, and you know what, what it, there is to work towards. Right, but um, yeah, as you said, for me, I didn't really know what the next goal was going to be. You know, I was kind of just like floating around in a sense, you know, just playing uh, one match at a time, this tournament, that tournament, seeing where it would go, you know. The other thing for me was college started also. So a lot of things changed in my life in terms of traveling. I couldn't travel as much. I traveled every now and then, and I kind of stayed in shape, and I had to change my schedule a little bit uh, in order to still keep training. Um, but uh, I didn't have anything specific in terms of post-Olympic depression. I just, I did have to kind of think about, um, what my next goals were. I did have something missing still on my, uh, resume in terms of, I didn't win national champion yet. So that was the one little thing I was missing. 
up until that point and i was i knew the next summer after that was uh there was a possibility for that um if i wanted to try for that and that was in a sense my next goal but i didn't look towards that until my freshman year of college kind of finished how did that goal go for you uh, i ended up winning exactly <laughs> i ended up winning that summer and kind of completing my list in a sense of like what i wanted to achieve my point being that as soon as you've achieved these goals and you have that for you yeah. what keeps you going um i think in a sense almost just and this enjoying just being in the court and just playing the sport as a whole um that kind of keeps me going just in terms of just keeping in touch with it um playing at the highest level is it's difficult you know sometimes it's some days it's hard and i'm just like okay i'm done i don't really want to play anymore i'm tired you know i did everything i did i don't really feel the motivation as much now um and then there's other days like okay maybe i want to try again for paris 2024 maybe i want to try again to become two time national champion you know so i have these kind of ups and downs in the sense of like okay some days i want to play sometimes i don't want to play and it's kind of just i'm just kind of just going with the flow in the moment um i'm still looking at towards my next goal in my career um and i think now i'm instead of like these the goals being like stepping stones to a bigger goal they're kind of just like their own goals now in a sense each smaller tournament is kind of like okay i just want to play well here let's focus towards this one finish this and then move on to the move on and then see if I can if I'm going to play the next tournament or not. It's different than before when I was younger I'd kind of set my goal my schedule for the next 6 months of like okay I'm going to play this tournament that tournament and all these different other training camps and things like that. Now it's kind of like taking it one at a time and kind of slowing it down and kind of also seeing where I am at where I'm at in terms of my level compared to other players who are up and coming in the US nowadays. For anybody that is goal setting, what has been the difference for you between setting specific goals week by week or month by month versus them just being stepping stones for something 6 months down the road or 2 years down the road? Yeah, I think the thing is it's just a matter of understanding your situation and the circumstances around you. Um yeah, if you kind of understand that like in the end the biggest goal like as I said before, right? My my journey for 2020 started in 2018. right and I had a bunch of really big tournaments between those two years right that I really wanted to play well i remember but some of the tournaments i had really really bad results didn't win one match at all right i remember one year i went to croatia and couldn't win one match and i was really contemplating like should i really still be playing like you know but in terms of as long as i understood where i was in my career and like what my my biggest goals were and that these were just moments in the and kind of learning experiences to build on top of that was the biggest thing for me i think you know it's just a matter of understanding i think where you are and like the circumstances around you and also the people who help you along the way you know as they also have an understanding of where you are um and if they can help you in terms of achieving whether it's the small goals or whether it's like the bigger one later on and kind of just building towards that with the new journey you're on and the new phase of your career that you're at What made you decide to not pursue a professional career in table tennis? Mm-hmm. Um and how has that impacted your career now because I know that there is an equivalent of college table tennis but it's not at the NCAA level. Yeah. Um but you're not retired and you could still go for Paris. So where are you at right now and why were those decisions made? Yeah, so yeah, I am in that kind of like gray area as you mentioned before, you know, of like not sure where I'm going to be. Um So I think for me personally I know in the long run that my education and what I'm studying at Berkeley is what I want to kind of focus on after school is done after I graduate and in the long term also that it'll be my career. Um the other thing that I kind of under 
kind of helped me make the, the decision whether to play professionally or come to Berkeley was like whether I had any regrets at all, whether I was still missing anything in my career in a sense of like, did I want to kind of keep pushing myself because I really wanted to try something again. And in that moment, I kind of felt like, no, not really. I kind of was happy with everything. And it's different, I think, for each individual, you know. Some players want to keep fighting and keep pushing on, and that's great for them, you know. But for me, I think I was happy with where I was and was happy with what I achieved. And that kind of pushed me towards making my decision to um, move coming to Berkeley. But I think also the way the system works and in a way also, like, if you're playing professionally, right, that becomes your living and and along with that, it also important is like how much money you're making, you know, financially, if you're able to sustain, you know, and for me personally, I didn't think it would be enough, you know, like the contracts I was provided and moving abroad, saying as far away from family and friends, it was a completely different life, you know, and once you're in the contract, also, you can't leave, you know, like you sign the contract, you're obliged to at least one year within that uh, contract. And sometimes... I know a lot of teammates that it was it was mentally very hard, you know, just to uh, live uh, abroad in Europe, to come every day to the hall and train, you know, six, seven hours a day and understand, like, this is your life. This is all you're doing now, you know. And that wasn't for me because I think my whole life also I had that kind of uh, school and uh, sports balance, you know, where, like, I did both, you know, and I always wanted to keep doing both. And I knew coming to Berkeley would allow me to still do both. But I knew going professionally would for sure like stop academic stop my academics for at least a while, and I didn't want to stop my academics, you know. So that was probably what went into making my decision, um, and I mean I'm happy where I, with I with where I'm at right now. I have no regrets. So and I think that was the most important thing for me. This past weekend, you were just competing at the national, the college nationals. Yeah, the college nationals, and you ended up being the national champion for that as well. Yeah. What does a collegiate table tennis system look like, and do you think that there's it should be a NCAA sport? Yeah, I mean, I wish it was an NCAA, NCAA sport, and I mean, that would help a lot in terms of, you know, helping a lot of players come to school and kind of giving that kind of process in terms of possibly that middle area of, like, kind of going from where you were in high school and playing a lot to kind of NCAA to maybe possibly going professional then from there, you know, and it kind of would also help build the sport in a way. Um, but in terms of college nationals, the level isn't that high compared to how I've played in the past. And I think that definitely gave me an advantage in terms of helping me win this tournament. Um, it wasn't uh, too strong, to say the least. I mean, it was. there were some uh, former national team members, a lot of players that I played with in the past when I was younger. But uh, in terms of level, it wasn't as high as many tournaments I've played in the past. Um, I'm hoping that over the years that you know we bring in more players and maybe someday... It becomes an NCAA sport because maybe in future generations it helps players, you know, apply to schools for table tennis specifically and are able to, you know, walk on as table tennis athletes instead of having to walk on as uh, academic students and then play table tennis as just like a side thing, you know. And it kind of forces, with it not being NCAA, it forces a lot of players to stop, you know, especially in college. Or they kind of just come play for fun. And it kind of... uh, lowers the sport in terms of how important it is or how professional it is in a sense and makes it harder. What do you think the U.S. needs to do to achieve success at the Olympic level? Um, I think there's a lot of different things that are need to be involved. I think one of the things is a lot of the sports you notice have like a big national training center, 
you know, where they can bring in the whole national team together to train in one location, right? As you mentioned before, a lot of our players uh, are all over the country, you know. we Some are in New York, mainly New York, Houston area, or all over California. Those are, like, the most prominent areas for table tennis. But we're all so spread apart, and it's so uh, far away that, like, it's hard to train together sometimes, you know. But what I learned probably between those years in, like, 2017 and 2019 was, like, we kind of would come together a week before rather than just show up the day before the tournament and kind of train together and build that team chemistry, right? And kind of uh, form that bond with each other that it really helped also when we go into competition in terms of supporting each other and wanting to win as a team versus just individually. Um, So I think that's one of the biggest things that we need, you know, kind of a way to bring the players together. Um, The other thing is also, I think, a lot more financial support, right? And also proof that there is a way to kind of make this a living, especially in the U.S., you know, and not that you have to move uh, abroad and have to play there um, and kind of set everything aside in the U.S. and live so far away in a way, you know. And I think that's something, as I mentioned before, you know, that I was at earlier this morning uh, about some, like, a pro league starting in the U.S., um, uh, we I'm kind of seeing where this is going. Uh, it's been looking good so far. I'm hoping that it kind of builds, and it's also just the beginning of it. You know, it might not be so big right now, but it might end up growing and growing. And I'm hoping it does. All of this leads me to the conclusion that I think. All right, like here's my hot take with all of this. Sure. For the Team USA to see success with table tennis at the Olympic level, it has to become an NCAA sport. Like the IOC in the United States, or whoever, not the IOC because that's international, but the Olympic Committee in the United States has to push for table tennis to become an NCAA sport, and here's why. If you're lacking funding and a potential pro league or anything like that, and there is a potential pro league coming in, the clear connection through that would be a draft, right? Where do you get that? Through the NCAA. Yeah. If you make it an NCAA sport, then you're going to attract table tennis players around the world that care about their education. So great Olympic-level table tennis players internationally, not just from the U.S., will be in the U.S. having the funding to travel and compete. So that's going to give a huge advantage and yeah. for players like you to not necessarily have to decide whether you want to do your academics or to pursue a professional career, but you can do both at the same level and at the same time. Yeah. You see it in all types of sports and that's why the, the U.S. is so good at the Olympics in general, and especially at Olympic sports. You look at swimming, you look at track, you look at... Basketball, uh, even. Oh. Well, I mean, basketball yeah. is just but a, they a also start. But they also come through NCAA, you know, as well. So exactly. I think, yeah, as you said, you're, I, think, I think you're correct, you know. NCAA is kind of like that building step in between that kind of would connect, you know, players that are from a younger age to kind of really building their skills, but at the same time also having an education. You look at a sport like swimming, and there are incredible swimmers in the NCAA, but they come from all around the world. It's not just uh, United States Olympians, it's international Olympians, and the best swimmers in the world, quite literally, are in the NCAA, unless they've already graduated and turned pro, but they all, mostly all, uh, went through this system. Why? Because it just makes sense academically, in the long run financially, but even right now with the training center that you were mentioning, 
there's so many good facilities across the nation because of this NCA funding. It's yeah. not like the sport of swimming brings in a lot of money. It's not a revenue sport at these universities. Yeah. But because of the NCA system and how it works with men's basketball and football and how much money these schools bring in, yeah. you can spread it out along different sports. And that's what puts these sports at a world-class level plus, institutionally. Yeah, I think plus there's also the, all the resources available that are provided at the schools, you know, with the gyms. Um, with the doctors, physios, all those things also, you know, that are there to help keep the athletes in shape and continue playing their sport, you know. So I think you're right, probably. Um, NCAA would, it would be, it would be a huge plus to uh, table tennis if we were able to kind of have that middle step in between. And I think a lot of players would actually start considering like possibly playing professionally. I think that if Team USA wants to achieve any success at the Olympics on the sport of table tennis, there has to be the NCAA sport, and this Pro League would help a lot to hopefully build that bridge afterwards because for it to just work in the United States, if it's not an NCAA sport, at least how it works right now institutionally and what the NCAA is as of today, yeah, that, that's what's needed in my opinion. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. With everything else... You took the decision to study instead of going professional. Yeah. But you're also taking a not-so-easy major, right? It's not like yeah. you were like, oh, I just want my degree. No, you're studying computer science, yeah. and you said that it's a financial decision in the long run. Yeah. But do you see yourself being as passionate in whatever a future job may hold as you are for table tennis? Um, I don't know. I'm not sure, to be honest. I'm kind of... It's a... These four years are kind of just like a learning process for me, I think, in terms of seeing what I like, what I don't like, you know. I think CS is the way I want to go, but there are so many also so many different paths I could go within just CS, you know. And I'm kind of just kind of feeling it out, seeing which way I want to go with that. And I'm still playing tabletop at the same time, you know. Uh, I'm also trying to see, you know, like, because I don't know if anything could become as big of a passion as table tennis was for me. Um, but I also just never know, because I'm just trying to stay open-minded at the moment and see, like, what could and couldn't work for me. Um, but at the moment, yeah, I'm still... My main focus is CS. I'm prioritizing that. Um, but if I have the opportunity to play some big event for table tennis and stuff, I still am trying out for those and trying to stay in shape and be prepared for those as well. With the Olympics came incredible experiences for you. Yeah. Um, the Olympic experience in and of itself is just something else, both resume-wise, experience-wise, yeah. everything. Just saying you were there and saying you competed at that level yeah. uh, makes you, I wouldn't even say top 1%. It's like the 1% of the 1%, right? Yeah. I don't know what the number is, but it's ridiculous how few people get to compete at that level. Yeah. Well, that comes great things like visiting the White House, <laughs> yeah. um, being on What the Fit with Kevin Hart, things like that. Take me through through those experiences and, and what that was like for you. Oh, yeah, those moments are amazing. I mean, start with um, the What the Fit one actually ended up happening before Olympics. Um, and at that time, I think I was one of the potentials for Olympics at the time. So, uh, I mean, for me, I was always just grateful for the, for the opportunity. I mean, it was a hilarious and amazing event with Kevin Hart and also Keegan-Michael Key. Um, so, yeah, that was great. Because I think also they that specific episode, they brought in some other... Um, Olympic athletes. There was like that episode was like overlooked Olympic sports basically, 
right? So they brought in some uh, fast, some I think I don't know exactly what the sport is called. I don't want to get it wrong, but like speed walking, I think. Okay. So I don't know exactly uh, uh, what it's called, and then they also brought in fencing. Um. So, yeah, it was pretty. It was a amazing moment for me. I mean, not many people get the chance to meet such celebrities as well, you know. And then also, of course, going to the White House and stuff. But I think the biggest thing of it that I keep in mind all the time is like that table tennis has given me so much that I kind of am always grateful, you know, for these moments and know that, understand also that I put in all the work before and this wouldn't have come without all the work that I put in in order to receive those kind of moments like that. In a way, I love to compare sports to life. I think that sports are a metaphor to life yeah. in the sense that these opportunities they weren't just given to you. They weren't just handed to you. You spent so many hours and so many days and months and years just grinding at this and then it gave you these opportunities you never had in the back of your mind I'm assuming oh I want to play table tennis to visit the White House I want to play table tennis to meet Kevin Hart or um Keegan Michael Key like that wasn't the end goal but it's beautiful how when you grind at whatever you're passionate about when you become the best of the best and whatever you love to do these opportunities come up and that's the case for everyone and everything like when you really grind at something you're passionate about and you care for and you become the best at that these opportunities are just open to you these doors begin to open that you didn't even know existed and it's it's beautiful to see through sports what's possible in life especially because sports just puts a a big spotlight uh on these life metaphors i guess whereas in your day-to-day life that light isn't always there yeah, I think that's something that's always going to stick with me always, you know, especially also the competitive nature that I've always had and just kind of enjoying the process along the way. And that one thing my parents always, always, always taught me as well was like the results will come, you know, like don't worry about like trying to win or lose. Know that like if you put in that work and you just focus on it, if you win, you'll know that it was all worth it, you know. And even if you lose, you understand that you put everything you could, you know, it's out of your hands now. You did everything that you could. And that's the most important thing for me. Enjoying the process is a very cliche phrase nowadays, but anybody that's been through anything competitively and has achieved what many few have and are capable of, they understand why it's so true and why it makes sense. Could you explain that for anybody that may not understand? Yeah, I mean, enjoying the process in a sense, like, because you kind of, many times when you achieve such big events, you know, sometimes... For example, winning the Pan American Games, you know, for me in that moment, after winning it, you kind of look back and you understand like, wow, the last like three months of the summer, you know, all that training you put in, all those days you're like, you hated doing it. You really didn't want to go back in, you know, it kind of, you kind of realize in the moment, like those were the day that was the part that was actually in a sense, almost exciting because that's what kind of build up to this moment, you know, and you know, if those weren't there that those days that you really didn't want to go in, didn't want to train as much, if those days weren't there, you wouldn't achieve what you have in the moment. You know, the same thing happened for me for Olympics as well. You know, that like, if I didn't put in those work for those two years, you know, I would maybe, maybe would not have achieved. But it's also possible, maybe I would have, you know. But the thing is like, where I am now, where I understood with all this is that like, without those moments there, the win isn't also worth as much too. You know, it feels a lot more grateful and a lot more exciting you know once you achieve what you have knowing that you put in so much work and also it's exciting knowing that like knowing how much work you can put in what you're capable of you know and that's i think the biggest part of just enjoying the process pretty much 
Yeah, success to a certain extent is also like cooking. Yeah. If you don't have the ingredients of exactly. failure, of the grind, the condiments of waking up early and not hitting the snooze button and sacrifices and rejecting all these other events or plans or invitations, if you don't add these ingredients into it, then the food is just not going to taste the same. And that's what success yeah. is, right? Like once you add all these ingredients and condiments, it just makes the feeling so much better. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. What's next for you? Um, we've talked about Paris a bit, a bit of context. Um, I DM'd you about mm-hmm. uh, doing that episode as I typically do with guests. And then I walk into this random breath requirement class that I need to graduate. And you're there. And I'm like, oh, no way. Like, Nikhil is, is here. Yeah. Um, and that's how we've met. So we've gotten to talk a bit off camera. But we've talked a tiny bit about Paris and potentially yes, potentially no. Um, what's next for you? What's... Paris 2024 looking like and and yeah um okay to be honest I don't know at the moment you know because it's it's hard um so I did about two weeks ago we had the team trials for the national team which was kind of the first step towards qualifying so that tournament would qualify us for the Pan American champs and the Pan American champs would determine based on the results there would determine if you qualified for the Olympics or not unfortunately I got injured two weeks ago so I wasn't able to complete uh, completely finished that tournament I wasn't able to qualify for the team um, but there are still a couple other possibilities in terms of qualifying there are some world qualification things which are much harder um, so I'm kind of just taking it one step at a time seeing how our team does you know if the team does well and can f- uh, qualify the team itself for the Olympics then maybe I have a second chance to joining that Olympic team then which will probably happen at the beginning of next year or so but up and, until then, I'm kind of just like seeing where I'm going with each event at a time. Um, I mean, no one's ever going to turn down the opportunity to go to Olympics, no matter how many times you've gone before, right? So if I do get that opportunity like fully to be ready and be prepared, I will go in and train 100% to be ready for it. At the moment, I'm still still going to focus on school. Uh, I'm not fully committed to going out, trying for uh, Paris 2024 because of injuries and things that I weren't that haven't that haven't allowed me to kind of reach my full potential in terms of preparation for the 2024 Olympics um, but we'll see I don't know maybe the end of this year something more positive comes out and we'll see um, whether or not I try out at the beginning of next year or not before I, I forget because I was almost forget, forgetting something that's very different between amateur athletes and even some pro athletes versus Olympic athletes is the entire drug testing system and USADA and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked a bit about that off camera. How does that work for you? I've had other Olympians here explain it to me for their specific sport, but in the sport of table tennis, what does that look like? Um, I think it's pretty similar. I think in most sports, uh, basically you have to give your whereabouts for about the next six months or so. Um, if you, yeah, so basically, and they can show up randomly. You know, you, so normally you give your primary overnight location than any other overnight loca- locations possibly in case like suddenly you're staying somewhere else. So like for me personally, my primary one is of course here in Berkeley in my apartment. Um, but then my, I have a secondary one at my house back home right where, where I live with my parents. Um, so I have those two as my overla- overnight locations and then plus I put down any tournaments I'm playing within the next six months, right? And sometimes maybe I don't know at the beginning, right? I have to fill out in December f- for January to June for the next year. But sometimes I don't know if they're, I'm playing some tournament later. So as soon as the tournament comes up, I got to go back into the system and change some stuff quickly in order to make sure that it's up to date 
so that they can show up basically wherever, whenever I, I'm available, you know. So it's just a way of showing, of proving to them that I'm available in these locations at these times, and you can come over here and I'm, you can test me whenever. What would happen if you, for some random reason, sleep over at a friend's house for on a Friday night or something? Yeah, so they have some stuff set in place for this where, like, um, I think you're not allowed to miss three tests within uh, one one year. Um, if you do, then there are some consequences to that in terms of, I don't know exactly how it works in terms of suspension. But I think it's also up to, like, the judge, in a sense, or, like, the discretion of the you have USADA of how much of a punishment you get for this. Um but yeah, normally you should, but as soon as you miss one test, they get more strict with you in terms of making sure that you don't miss a second one and they get more strict for the third one. And normally you shouldn't be able to miss three, but sometimes it, it can be difficult, but normally most people don't miss three tests within one year. How often have you gotten drug tested? So I've haven't, I've been tested, I got tested once last semester, actually at the beginning of last semester. Um, since then I haven't been tested yet. Um... I think they also ramp up the amount of times you get tested when you have like a bigger event coming up. So I got tested within like three, t- I got, within six months, I got tested three times before the Olympics, right? And also they have both in competition and out of competition testing. Um, what they test for is slightly different based on whether it's in competition or out of competition. Um, but the general stuff's still the same in terms of like steroid or muscle enhancing, the, the, those stuff that basically don't make it fair um, for you to compete. Um, and yeah, so they've, that was, they don't test me too often. I probably get tested maybe once a year, sometimes not even during the year. Um, but I have to keep my name in the testing pool as long as I'm still playing table tennis. So currently I still am playing for the national team and things like that. So I have to keep my name in there. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much how it works. They ramp it up normally when bigger events are coming up and not so much when you don't have to, when you're not playing as much too, they don't test you as much as well. So when does this end? As soon as you retire or... Or how would that work? Like, do you have to officially retire under the system for it to stop, or I have to let them know actually. So like, I I have to, I, I think so. I think that's how it works. That I have to let them know that okay, now I'm done. I'm not on the national team anymore. I can take my name off this. You no longer have to test me. I'm not playing like professionally at, or like any international tournaments at all or at a high high level anymore. What do you think would happen if you retire and then come back? Um, I think I'd probably have to <laughs> put my name back in. To be honest. Uh, but I don't know how I don't know exactly how it would work if I had to uh, take my name out and put it back in. I'm kind of just keeping it on the safe side and just keeping my name in, you know. And then we'll we'll see if I'm. I'll know like when I'm done because then I'll be like completely done, you know. I I won't go back come back to the sport then, and then then I can confidently like take my name out and not have to worry about any uh, miscommunication with them. Yeah. Well, just to close off, I have a a couple of final questions. Yeah. Um, before I let let you off the hook, um, for starters, what is your personal definition of success? Uh, yeah, this is some deep questions. Um, I think uh, for success for me is I think knowing that I put in the hundred percent effort that I could. It's not necessarily about the result in the end. Um, the result is always a bonus and is always what I hope for. You know. But I think it, those don't come if you don't put in the work. And for me, success is kind of like if I can, if I know that I put in 100% and I have that understanding in my mind that even going into the tournament, that like, okay, if I win or lose, that I have no regrets and I don't think about, oh, did I, I should have practiced one extra day. I should have taken not taken this day off or something like that. Or I shouldn't have gone to this party. 
then I know that like, okay, that's hundred percent like success for me. It's more about for me, like effort during the process versus like just the result. And yeah, that's what I try to strive for each time I try to achieve some new goal in my life. What advice would you give for anybody experiencing any sort of failure in whatever their passion or career is? Yeah, I think, okay, first, I think in sports, mainly, specifically, I think is kind of just enjoy, enjoy playing, you know, enjoy the process, love the game in a sense, you know, because if you don't love it, there's no point playing, there's there's no reason to, you know, uh, put in all the effort, because you're putting it in for, for nothing then in that moment, you know, because you come out after it, like, and you're realizing, like, why did I do that, there's no point of it, you know. So I think that's the first thing, understanding, you know, to love the game and to love what you're doing. And I think that also works with any career, you know, just to enjoy the process. And failures and mistakes happen, you know. It happens throughout the process, and that's part of the learning experience, you know. And honestly, you do need those in order to become better because that's the only way you know how to better yourself. If you constantly keep winning, right, yeah, sure, but then I think at some point you kind of lose the motivation, you know. And I think, no, and of course, nobody is perfect, you know. Everyone wants to be perfect and be the best but it's it, it's not going to happen like that and it doesn't come easy also and that does come with mistakes and and losing a lot along the way last question once everything is said and done yeah what would you like to be remembered for um i honestly i think just for me as a person i think i would that's probably the most important thing and that's probably the thing that makes me the happiest in terms of when I speak to fans or other people just trying to understand my life or my career. That probably makes me the happiest knowing that people believe that I am was a good person just on and off the court, you know? Like, yeah, people will know me, right? I, I won Pan American Games. I went to the Olympics. I'm national champion. Sure, these are all great, but I think being a good person comes first. And that's probably the most important thing just for me in life. Um, and everything along added to that is just added bonuses for me. Nikhil, that's all I have for you. Is there anything I missed? Anything else you want to touch on? Uh, no, I think it's, it's been great. I think I had a great conversation here. Awesome. Well, I mean, the doors are always open for a part two whenever, whenever you'd like. Um, I know you don't graduate for at least a couple more years, right? Yeah, I'm about to be halfway done. I'm in my sophomore year right now. Yeah, so I'm a senior, but I'll be doing a master's here. So we'll be uh, graduating at around the same, same time. time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'd love to do this again sometime. It was great getting to know your story and finally getting to do this. We've been talking about yeah. this for, for a while. Yeah. Um, but it was awesome having you on. And like I said, looking forward to, to not only hopefully having a part two, but following along wherever it is that your professional, not professional, but your athletic career goes and personal career as well, because um, besides the athletic part, you definitely are a, a great person and, and someone that is a, a good friend of mine in class now. <laughs> yeah. So so I appreciate that. Um, yeah, thank you for having me. I'm definitely looking forward to, you know, in the future, maybe having another time we have a conversation like this again. We'll for sure make it happen. To anybody that watched on YouTube or listened on Spotify, thank you guys so much. If you're on YouTube, please like and subscribe. If you're on Spotify, please follow the podcast. That's it for today. I'll see you all next time.